Warning, we have knowledge of socialism, but as far as knowledge of organization on a scale of millions, that we have not. That's uh, Vladimir Lenin, leader of the Soviet Union, five years after the revolution. as usual it's the worst welcome everyone to the seriously wrong podcast my name is aaron and my name is sean the seriously wrong podcast is actually the only podcast on the entire internet that will i really had nothing at the beginning of this you're just hoping it would pop in yeah. it's the only podcast on the internet that will get up and give you its seat on the bus if you look like you're tired a lot of other podcasts will selfishly keep the seat even if you look tired maybe they're tired too like no you know sometimes a podcast is tired i don't want to throw shade on other podcasts but i'm just saying we will or the podcast will get up and give you a seat this podcast Uh, we got a really great episode so far as you can tell great guests lee phillips and michal yeah you say it michal rosworski so everyone please sit back relax Put the earbuds in if they're not already in. Yeah, if you're just holding them near, <laughs> nearby, you should put it in. You're going to get a better sound quality that way. Yeah, definitely. And then you freeze your hands up to do whatever you want. That's feedback we get a lot, actually. I love this podcast, but I hate holding my <laughs> headphone <laughs> millimeters from my ear all so the time. What we always try to tell those people is stop holding your headphones millimeters from your ear. Just... The earbuds are made to go in. <laughs> Free up your hands. Uh, yeah, and it, it just feels so good to let people know that because it makes their lives better and it makes our lives better. And we hope that you use your hands wisely. One thing you could do with your hands is open up a browser window, go to our Twitter. It's a great Twitter. Yeah, Seriously Wrong, S-R-S-L-Y. It's on Twitter, it's on Facebook, and we actually have a four-year-old Instagram with some... <laughs> some some posts from 2015 on there and we have 92 followers 92 followers so check that out we want to get that number up. we want to double that we want to be up to 184 184 followers you're going to unlock the seventh instagram post and then it's it's only up from there so just yeah. and if you like the show we do have a patreon and the people who help us keep doing this are our saviors so if you want to be our savior head over to patreon it sort of makes you like a big time podcast producer oh yeah definitely it's exactly like being a producer and then if seriously wrong comes up you can be like i'm actually a producer on that show and then people are like wow can i buy you a drink we give permission for you to claim that imagine the accolades oh my really attractive cousin would love to go on a date with you if you produce seriously wrong (laughs) let me set it up blind date (laughs) I want to have a producer to Seriously Wrong in my family. Yeah, would you marry me? (laughs) (laughs) Great episode coming up. Great guests. Great book. Great, 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 great. Sit back, put on your goggles, and enjoy. 
Why do you want to shop at Walmart now for October's hottest items? Because you need to find happiness in every aisle. It's rollback time at Walmart and everyone's pitching in, even me. Just by making sure our trailers are packed fuller, we save millions of dollars on fuel costs. And when costs go down, prices go down. It's a beautiful thing. Save money, live better. Walmart. Today, we've got two very special guests in the studio, Lee Phillips and Michal Rozworski. Correct. Oh, thumbs up. The two of them have written a really awesome book called The People's Republic of Walmart. What, what inspired this book, The People's Republic of Walmart? The title is Leeds, but basically getting together in a bar yeah. at one point and realizing <laughs> that we both wanted to write the same book mm. and figured rather than trying to out-compete each other like good capitalists, we'd be the good socialists we are and actually work together and write it. I do, I do recall leaving the bar a few beers in, walking away and sort of thinking to myself, oh, I, I guess I've just agreed to write a book. Uh, with <laughs> so that, yeah. So, and, you know, as all sort of like bar talk, you know, oh, we're going to do this and that, and you know, the plans that come <laughs> yeah. together with, uh, with the lubrication of alcohol, except that this plan actually came to I fruition. The original plan was to take over Walmart for the global proletariat and then it got whittled down to a book you know happens to the best plan yeah exactly <laughs> so it's just because you guys love walmart so much and no as no quite, quite, huge, quite, the, huge quite the contrary in fact uh i mean at the the outset of the book we try to sort of clear our throats a little bit and make sure that everybody doesn't think that this book is some sort of massive celebration of walmart mm. The way that we put it is more like the way that Sherlock Holmes has enormous admiration for Moriarty, his great enemy. Similarly, you know, the, the terrible treatment of the workers and low wages and poverty conditions and a certain significant percentage of the workers have to depend on welfare even to work there. That's all known, but at the same time, we have to sort of, you know, sort of salute and genuinely admire the logistic wonder that is Walmart because internally it's entirely planned even though it operates within the market internally it's entirely planned and of course this is one of the largest planned economies in history and probably the strongest argument that the right has ever mounted against the left against socialism and it was really bloody good argument which was well, you know, socialism is all very well and good, but the price signal in the marketplace is supposed to encapsulate so much information, an infinitude of information, that if you try to plan that instead, you'd have to have an army of bureaucrats coming up with all of that information that is otherwise expressed or supposed to be expressed by the price signal. And there's just an infinitude of variables and it would just be impossible. And so, if, but what's fascinating about Walmart is that if that's actually the case, then Walmart shouldn't work. Or it shouldn't work on the scale it does and have the reach it does and have the capacity it does. And yeah, and have these kind of internal conditions that it does. And it was, yeah, it was part of grappling with the institutions of contemporary capitalism yeah. and really thinking through what they mean for a left project and bringing some of these ideas back onto the horizons of a left project, which to a large degree, you know, hasn't really talked that much about planning or, you know, economics more generally has been less of a focus, but specifically debates around planning have kind of gone dead and silent for over a half century. So, yeah, because internally, 
Walmart's different departments or through the supply chain, they aren't haggling with each other. They aren't competing with each other. They aren't, you know, trying to get the best price from the distributor that distributes to all the other Walmarts. It's just one big system. They're cooperating with each other. They are working together to get this huge task done. Yeah, as Miel's put it a couple of times before, is the foreman doesn't say to the different people under him or her who's going to bid the lowest price to move boxes move from boxes one, one shelf to, to another <laughs> warehouse to the other which you know theoretically you could You'd be auctioning off you know this task and then yeah why not you, you could see who was the most tired their price would go up and maybe yeah. it would be too high and they'd have to go home that day and then the, all the people who had a better price because they really needed right. the money that day could bid to stock the but, one shelf exactly and you do another yeah. bid a uh, half hour later for the next and shelf. so this yeah. is this is absolutely fascinating because if market mechanisms are supposed to be the most efficient, most the best way to allocate goods and services. Why don't they operate within corporations? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if scales. the the scale of, of Walmart is an economy, an internal economy, that if it were a country today, would be, you know, 38th largest economy in the world, not quite in the G20, but on the scale of a Switzerland, right? Well, that shouldn't be working, according to the, the conservative argument. So we were just fascinated by this, and we yeah. want to explore why that was the case. And with respect to Walmart, did a sort of deep dive in business scholarly work, operations research. And Walmart isn't unique in this. It's just no. kind of emblematic. And it is yeah. it is extremely large in absolute terms, in terms of revenue and in terms of number of employees and, and all of this. And also it's not like a U.S. steel or something like this, not a big sort of industrial concern that people normally would think of, you know, if you think of like kind of heavy industry, like the kind of plant stuff that's planned internally, but it is like a consumer distribution network, which is, that's supposed to be the harder problem for planning, like the further down you move and the further you move into sort of logistics and distribution, that's where the markets are supposed to be better. The best that the right would concede, the most that they would concede would be like, oh, well, maybe... Planning could work for big infrastructure or steel production or coal mining or something like that. But come on, you're never going to be able to plan consumer items, the the Barbie dolls and dresses and jeans and and, and so on and so forth. There's just so many more variables involved in the production of those items compared to coal or steel, say. So that was the other thing is we wanted to take the hardest example. So we have real consumer facing corporations like Walmart and Amazon to say, okay, we'll take your, you know, your most difficult challenge to the left and and still see that planning is possible there. And we needed some case studies. You know, the point of the book wasn't to be like a theoretical magnum opus or whatever. It was supposed to make the topic relatable and, and think about it in practice. You know, think about the Walmart, think about the NHS, think about Allende's Chile or something. Give some good cogent kind of examples rather than kind of boring people to death. Although there are sections on the economic calculation problem, which... <laughs> Oh, do I? Ah, you know. What what? You know. What what are you talking about? You know, I really enjoyed that stuff. I'm a person who's found myself arguing online about the economic calculation problem. And so going into the minutiae there and really taking the argument seriously and responding to a lot of the potential arguments against what you were saying so that I know, you know, next time I'm in an argument about the economic calculation problem, I can go <laughs> searching <laughs> through that book looking for those <laughs> words to paste and be like, see, this thing, uh, simplex algorithms are a thing. I don't know what they are, but they'll help with this. I know it. <laughs> I suppose we should probably mention Frederick Jameson, the literary uh, theorist and political theorist. A number of years ago, he wrote 
an essay on Walmartist utopia. And it was sort of a, I don't know, you could be viewed as a sort of contrarian, a tongue-in-cheek sort of poke at the, the left, suggesting that Walmart is already the utopia that we're looking for because of its logistical wonder mm. and uh, sort of hinting at the debates around the, the socialist calculation debate. And what we did was we wanted to take his argument very seriously. It's yeah. not a throwaway line, not a contrarianism. And we wanted to say, okay, no, let's take this seriously. What What is utopian about Walmart? What is it in there where we can tease out the socialism emerging at the horizon? Uh, yeah, the, the same contradictions that, you know, the left over time has seen in capitalism that same kind of dialectical, whatever you want to call it, relationship. You have that line from Marx, the factory is where people learn cooperation yeah. or what have you, right? The factory or, or large-scale production, for example, is horrific and terrible, and yet at the same time kind of makes real social production in a way that it hadn't been before and makes people aware that they're kind of dependent on each other in a way that was harder to conceptualize before when everyone was, you know, tilling their own field and just giving tithes to the priest and the Lord or whatever. I I guess the other thing just straight up is that Walmart is the largest corporation in the world. And we also look at Amazon and we wanted to use some of the very best examples of capitalism in a sort of political jujitsu. What we conclude is that planning is already here in, in a huge way. It already exists and it works. It's just very hierarchical. And now it's time for a wholesome family teaching moment. Knock, knock. Son, are you in here? Hey, Dad. Sup? Welcome to my room. Well, thank you for the warm welcome. But I gotta say, boy, this place is a sty. Did a tornado just come through here? I've been getting into a bunch of stuff around here. I'm on the move. Just kind of letting it go where the impulses take me on the free market place of attention. And Well, do you have a plan to clean it at some point? Or? A plan? Have I, uh, plan. Is that a type is? of land, like local area network? P-LAN? No, no, son. A plan is a way for human beings to take responsibility for themselves and their place in the universe and imagine outcomes that they want to create, like writing a short story. Could a plan have steps? Very good question, son. Yes, plans can have steps, and they often do. You're a natural. Yeah, I'd never heard of this before. It sounds really useful. I thought I was a mere slave to whim. And then you can learn from that experience and then adjust your plans in the future. You could even adjust a plan partway through on the fly. Whoa, whoa, don't get ahead of yourself, son. That's a very advanced Advanced planning. planning? Okay, I'll wait. Because when that goes wrong, it can go really wrong. You plan to go shopping, you end up killing three men. Whoa. That's what happens. Dad, that's never happened to you, has it? No, son. I have that level of specificity in my example for a different reason, son. Well, thanks, Dad. I think you've turned my life around. From now on, I'm going to use forethought to decide what I want and consider different options before choosing a goal and then executing a plan to achieve it. That's right, son. It's a plan. Don't you think your mother and I planned you? Really? Wow. I'm just so excited about planning. I'm going to plan to clean my room and then plan for an amazing life, an amazing future. I love you, Dad. Oh, I love you too, son. It's great to see you plan. I'm so embarrassed I never planned to cry. But I'm going to have to change plans partway through. Oh, it's advanced. I've been planning for a long time, boy. And one day you will too. Planning makes the world go round, son. Wow. 
This has been a wholesome family teaching moment. Now back to our show. So the conventional sort of logic here with the economic calculation problem is it's impossible to ever plan out all these different elements of the economy. You're going to end up with these stuffy bureaucrats far away in an office trying to decide every aspect of a society that makes it fall apart. And this is like the classic communism works in theory, but not in practice idea. So in this book, you're, you're arguing that planning does work. Yeah, I would say that if the demand were that we did actually need to calculate the true infinitude, the true infinity of, of variables at every stage of production. Yeah, that, no, I mean, the conservatives are absolutely right on that. That, that. that is actually mathematically impossible. But it turns out that we don't need that perfect infinitude. It's already good enough. So yeah, you know, the, the line that we always hear, as you were saying, Sean, that socialism is all very well and good in theory, but doesn't work in practice. And it's quite the other way around, that planning doesn't work in theory, but it does work in practice. And it doesn't work in theory is, you know, tongue in cheek. This is sort of a very high level of mathematical complexity that you get when you have enough variables, enough sort of interdependencies that theoretically should make these kind of problems that are not soluble within whatever kind of normal time frame that you'd want to use. You know, there's lots of engineering problems, all sorts of problems where, again, you could get oh, down right. to some yeah. level of mathematical abstraction where things become unworkable. And yet, that's the point of the examples, is that, and yet, here's planning within Walmart, here's planning within Amazon, here's all these practical examples of planning works, and part of it is economists like to talk about the second best, right? Sometimes the first best solution. And it's like, you know, we have this idealized thing, and the first best solution doesn't work, but there's the second best. In some ways, that's what, like, planning and practice is is the second best. There is something that, that works here. What was the, what's the line from, uh, about the green blobs and the... Oh, the yeah. So this is Herbert Simon, who's, we unfortunately go into this numerous times in the book, of fake, the Alfred Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics funded by the Swedish Central Bank. Anyways, winner, winner of the so-called Nobel Prize in Economics, Herbert Simon, um, who is actually a, a big figure in mainstream economics, and even in a positive way, really undermined the kind of model of hyper-rational kind of the real stereotypical kind of homo economicus, total yeah, rationalizer, maximizer actors and... model of humanity. But later in his life, he wrote this great essay where he says at the beginning, he has this anecdote and he says, you know, imagine some Martians coming towards Earth from space and they're looking at our social system. What would it look like to them? And he said, you know, basically it would look like a bunch of these big green blobs interconnected by thin red lines and the green blobs are planned institutions are huge whether it's corporations or public institutions or what have you and then the thin red lines are the market interactions between them and right. you know would you describe this as green blobs connected with red lines or red lines connecting you know what would be the thing that would stand right. out to you he says what would clearly stand out to these people coming around space would be the the fact that it's actually these like huge planned institutions with some interconnections between that are driven by market. Green blobism. So the aliens Green would blobism. be confused that we think we're in a market instead of a bunch of planned Yeah, and then, and then they, yeah, they get to the Walmart, you know, take me to your planner and <laughs> take them to the discount aisle or whatever. You know, who knows? No, but they, but yeah, yeah they, they would be, they would definitely be confused if then they heard one of us trying to describe the social system to them. You know, if they actually were able to kind of see not with x-ray vision, but with social institutional vision. And then they got some transmission from Earth and someone said, oh, you know, we live in a market capitalist system where the most important things are prices that, you know, and, and market transactions and competition between people and free exchange. You know, they would be very surprised to hear 
At least that's, that's what Simon thinks. That's, on, that, that's right. what was going on, having seen These what they saw. Earthlings identify with their tiny red lines for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and to the question of, you know, it's just some bureaucrats far away making all these decisions, right? That's, we already have a system where, you know, it's CEOs far away yeah. making decisions and creating, you know, a system of domination over people whether it's at work and, you know, in other places in society as well, but also at work where a large number of people spend a large chunk of their time where they're deprived of freedom and deprived of any real say. And then that filters down to, you know, how kind of material conditions of life are constituted, you know, what, what we actually end up doing, what we end up producing. All of that is decided by bureaucrats in a certain sense in that it's driven by profits, driven by boardrooms and things like that. And the point is to introduce democracy into it. The point isn't to have you know, just one computer calculating everything. Again, this is not like a blooper or anything like that, but to introduce democracy into ever greater spheres of human life, which also involves a bunch of imperfections and involves people making, you know, real decisions over what they want to do. For sure. We talk a lot in the book. And so we sort of try to build a steady series of arguments and first respond to the question of, is planning possible? I think we answer with respect yeah. to Walmart and Amazon, they show actually it is already possible. So the necessary condition for socialism is met. But obviously, Walmart and Amazon are these horrific hierarchies. It's a hierarchical planning, it's not democratic planning. So the sufficient condition for socialism, that is, you know, true democratic planning is not met. And so that's, that's the sort of next step. We go into a discussion of it's not merely enough to just take over Walmart and replicate that hierarchical planning, but what would it take to democratize that? How would that look? So it's not merely taking it over, but a transformation of Walmart as well. Then we talk about the National Health Service, which in the UK, the, the British yeah, health system is, is already a public institution that's planned through and through like a Walmart or like an Amazon. But again, insufficiently democratic, insufficiently mm -hmm. participatory, you know, and then oddly enough, gets a dose of marketization thrown into it by Margaret Thatcher and later really instituted by Tony Blair and New Labour, where, you know, democracy and participation and sort of freedom is filtered through the market mechanism and, and, and it becomes a clusterfuck, right? Internally, much more so than before and becomes a, a worse service. The bureaucracy actually becomes bigger in many ways. I, I have a, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it, when they instituted all these market mechanisms within the NHS, they had to hire like thousands of new managers to do it. And that, you know, this was the great, you know, market kind of participatory democratization of this institution. It also reminds me of, in the book, you two talk about Sears and the kind of weird situation and hijinks that came up in that company when they decided to implement these kinds of market mechanisms internally inside yeah. the company, like pitting different aspects of the organization in competition with each other. But the CEO is like a big Ayn Rand believer, mm -hmm. right? Like a literalist of totally. objectivism. Yeah. 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 Eddie Lampert, when he took over Sears, opened the black box of Sears and looked inside and he was such a Randian. He was horrified at the fact that it was planned. So little self-interest. Uh, it was. He basically <laughs> yeah. felt that you know, Sears is communist. You mean cosmetics isn't competing with Otto? It's, it's insane. We have to. We have to pit them against each other. <laughs> so, well, yeah. So, so what, what ended up happening was a complete disaster, and there was competition. There was a lack of sharing of information. There was duplication. Marketing didn't know what different departments were wanting to put on sale and at different times. And you need and, to have your trade secrets inside Sears, yeah. right? <laughs> It was it was 
so ineffective, so inefficient that, yeah, it ultimately did result in the, in what we see at the moment with Sears, which is the company going under. Basically. Yeah. And again, fucking over its workers, right? And, and again, showing that second face where you introduced under the pretense of creating this kind of capitalist utopia, even within the corporation, and it falls apart. And of course, the people who are left on the hook is not, you know, the pensioners, the workers are the first ones to sort of bear the brunt and are the last ones in line in the bankruptcy proceedings. And Eddie Lampert's fine. But what's absolutely fascinating about these examples, with the exception of Sears, is these enormous multinational corporations, they are playing on this these vast scales and they're all like that. You, you mentioned central banks as well, or yeah. like all banks, yeah. investment banks is also being elements of planning, like people making top-down decisions about the economy as a whole for a nation in a central bank's case or about which ventures to fund, like what what yeah. we should do. Yeah. And it's I mean, and planning. it's not it's not just us, you know, come up with this, you know, Bloomberg Business Week runs an article by Matt Levine, who's one of their columnists saying, you know, our index funds communist, something like that. And they've, and they've had a few of these now. And it's that's specific to index funds. But in general, the financial system, especially after the crash of 2008, has become even more apparent where the central bank intervention was even larger and the intervention into kind of credit markets was even greater and and the rise of kind of index funds you know there's huge amounts of money that are no longer being invested in individual stocks but in products that reflect entire indices where it's no longer right if you own shares in the one airline you care that it you know that delta outcompetes american if you own a small chunk in all of them all you care about is you basically care that they become an oligopoly and and have like oligopoly profits, but you care about them actually cooperate, which demands their cooperation. So not even within the firm, but between the firms themselves, right? There's right. still the, within- The interests that, of people who own index funds that include various different companies, uh, like shareholders or whatever, they have an interest in all those companies at the same time, all doing well. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. And that, that's very different than the interests of people who are investing in one specific right, one in right. order to go, you know. It puts the lie to the classical narrative that companies are competing against each other, that increasingly more and more right. what we see is that there is this sectoral cooperation. Hence the title, our index funds communists. I love the idea of like capitalist ideologues always like sort of looking over their shoulder for the creeping communism in their they're like oh my god that's communist too like holy shit we made communism <laughs> <laughs> like abort abort no back to stocks fuck this it's just you know, the no natural progress funds. of history that's yeah. what happens gonna end yeah. up with communism <laughs> sort of yeah, yeah. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by The Profit Motive. The thing I love about The Profit Motive is that it just mechanistically, sort of unthinkingly, causes people to seek out whatever's going to make the most money, and how that also always lines up with the good, morally. The Profit Motive is so powerful that if people found some sort of way to make money doing something unethical, no. The whole system would fall apart. Wouldn't happen. It would be impossible. It wouldn't be profitable. No, it's profitable to do the right thing. And in contrast to that, no, in, in contrast to perfect, ethical, pristine, mechanistically ethical markets, yeah. 
you have human planning, Ooh, which yeah, controlled num- controlled by fallen people, incapable of ethical. Yeah, no, they're thought. not even if they're not seeking profit. How are they going to know what's good? Yeah, and they're always going to inherently have sort of that self-interested human planning effect, where they try to get as much as they can for themselves. Yeah, or even if they try to do what's good, they'll be too buffoonish and uh, fallen. We we, we fallen use the word fallen, yeah, to follow through on their noble desires, and then those noble desires uh, you know sort of degenerate into rabid shooting and um, knifing campaigns the mere fact that you made a plan that causes knifings the profit motive you can't get knifed for profit As we all know, not everyone's utopia is the same. And there are thousands of potential futures that we move towards and away from every day. The following is a sampling of just one of the tens of thousands of futures. Not my utopia, but someone's. We now go to a fully transactional, luxury price signal capitalist utopia. Wow, the corn nuts are expensive. Well, it's because right now the demand for corn nuts is so high. Yeah, it's after lunch. Everyone wants corn nuts. Prices adjust over the course of the day naturally. Of course, yeah. Supply meets demand in perfect equilibrium in each moment. And actually, look, this is sort of interesting over here. The price of bananas is super volatile today. Just shooting up. Oh, yeah. Every second. So you want to get it through the register at the exact moment it's cheapest obviously but there's no promise of that Uh, it's a great thing we've achieved in society yeah i love this world ah man my basket is full would you mind carrying a few extra items in your basket it seems like you're only getting a few things oh sure yeah i'm down to open up negotiations on this how much are you willing to pay for me to use my Mm. labor power to carry that over to the register to rent uh let's say a quarter of your basket and a quarter of the strength of your arm Mm. 75 cents oh wow. we're gonna head right to the register right yeah i was gonna i was thinking something more like 275 territory ooh, and that's ooh, and I, let me tell you the logic behind my that. arm here. now you're saying you'll take up about a quarter of my basket and i guess that's true in the amount of space but with the weight of the stuff in my basket your stuff is introducing a much larger ratio of weight yeah um, that jar of peanut butter is gonna it's a lot weigh, heavier weigh than what i have down. yeah i've just got some yeah. raisins got a sports magazine i mean you can see what yeah, i have no, i don't need to describe a good it point. how about 240 i can go with 240 sure yeah you're a friend great thank you if you can just transfer that over now on your oh, um, you capital advisor well yeah uh, trust me right i'll put it in escrow yeah, I, I just like to be in the habit. I, you know, I'm always in the habit. As long as you're paying the escrow fee, I'm cool. Just with hold it. on while I negotiate with the escrow service on my comlink. How about eight cents? No, no, it'll just be for a few minutes. Sixteen cents on a two forty transaction. I mean, you could just transfer it to me. I'm gonna carry it. You don't need to pay the escrow. Okay. 12 cents. I mean, why don't you just pay me 250? Oh, I already did it now. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So yeah, head to the register. Yeah. Oh, there's a big line at number nine there. Number four is, looks almost empty. Hey, how's your day going, sir? How many items? Uh, let's see. One, two, three. Just five. Five items. Uh, just kind of taking it slow. I'm going to say three bucks. Three bucks. Jeez. 
I could probably get that for, you know, 35 cents over on aisle nine. Yeah, Cindy does a flat six cents an item. So your five items, that's like 30 cents. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm trying to think if it's worth my time to pay the three bucks. I won't have to wait in that line. Yeah, let me just make a rational decision real quick by first considering all possible outcomes here. One sec. Stand here mm. at the register and wait. I have decided that it would be worth it if, say, it was about $2.75. $2.79? You got a deal. Sounds good. All right, so I'll just uh, check these five items out. Oh, I forgot to bring a reusable bag. You know what? I'm going to buy another new reusable bag. I always forget them at home, but I'm oh, going to okay, buy one. Oh, okay, so six items. That changes the whole thing. Like, I don't include bags in my checkout line. Aisle 9 includes bags in the original quote. But we're free in this society, right? Yeah, I'm free to go there. That's a really convincing point. Ten minutes later... Where'd you park the pod? Oh, I know it's around here somewhere. I should have paid for a ticket that told me the parking spot. You were free to. Yeah, 100% freedom. There's nothing like it. Yeah, I mean, what would you do? Have some sort of smoke-filled boardroom far away where a bunch of white men in business suits plan all of the prices in the morning? Yeah, just not even on the grocery store floor, not taking into account the on-the-ground realities of the moment. Just plan it out for the whole day, and they're just supposed to make that decision, (laughs) and it never changes. This is my impression of that. Fellas, I came up with a price for Cheerios. (laughs) Three sixty four. Oh, you expect that to hold all day? Yeah, Three sixty four. And all for day. supply to meet demand? <laughs> that's wild. Uh, God, humorous. that society would be idiotic. It, it would fall apart. The people would start stabbing. Ah, uh, feels good to live in the perfect future. It really does. And this has been a seriously wrong, possible, future, utopian heritage moment from one of the tens of thousands of possible futures. Likeliness unstated. (laughs) So sort of the classic example against planning, especially in a socialist context, is the USSR is notorious for not implementing full communism. What? <laughs> uh, Did you take that from Wikipedia? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so why, if planning works and is good, right. what was wrong with their planning? Like, what's the issue there? Have we got this misconception? Many, right. Many so things. again, the argument from the conservative side within the economic calculation debate, the argument that they make around the Soviet Union is that precisely because of the impossibility of planning to have perfect knowledge of all the variables within a supply chain, the deterioration of information will inevitably result in chaos. That chaos can only be resolved in an authoritarian way. In other words, planning is what caused the authoritarianism of of Stalinism. We would turn it around the other way, that it was the authoritarianism of Stalin that undermined the quality of the information in the system. That is to say, you know, if you're tasked with a particular job that you have to produce, you know, 100 widgets by the end of April, and you don't meet your target, you're scared of being killed, being shot, being accused of being a what in the Soviet Union was described as a wrecker. This was a crime within the Soviet Union to be a wrecker. Mm. You would report that you had met your target or that you had exceeded your target. So it was actually the authoritarianism. It was the, the fear of death in many respects or imprisonment or that resulted in the undermining of the information in the system, which means an undermining of the, the quality of the planning. So it's sort of the other way around. It's not that planning creates authoritarianism. Authoritarianism undermines planning. 
just that extra level of authoritarianism over the kind of domination that you have in capitalism where you'll lose your job but maybe not be imprisoned or not in your life or what have you, where capitalism also uses threats very effectively. I mean, the other thing is, you know, we talk about technology a fair bit and, and the in terms of information technology that we have even just today, which we're still in, the, in our infancy, but part of the debate, for example, around the socialist calculation debate in the 30s and 40s, you know, even before Turing had invented kind of like modern computers, let's say, it was hard to even imagine that some of these, even the simpler kind of level of problems would, would be solved because of the lack of technology. And the Soviet Union definitely also, also lacked that. And then the social conditions created a whole host of really nutty social and economic incentives and, and catastrophes. This is, I think, the computerization is a really crucial aspect of this, that, you know, historically the left absolutely recognized that for all of the horrors of capitalism, one did have to pass through capitalism in order to develop the force of production, basically the science and the technology and so on and so forth, uh, to achieve socialism, you had to sort of pass through that first. And I think we should probably update that argument to say that, yeah, we probably did need a certain level of computerization before we could achieve the scale of planning that we're talking about now with respect to consumer items at, from the Walmarts and Amazons of the world that, uh, you know, even to give the, the Soviet Union its due in a sort of rough way, it did lift this backward, this feudal economy into sort of modernity through a very rough, brutal, planned modernization process that did work in those sort of more, as we were talking heavy about industry, earlier, the sort of the heavy industry and failed utterly in the uh, the other side of things. And so we probably did need some some level of computerization to be able to track. Yeah, because there are many, a great many more uh, variables when we're talking about consumer items compared to uh, uh, industrial products. But yeah, even when we're talking about how it didn't work, like uh, I like that point. It's a good point that it went from being this country that was relatively behind a lot of the other European nations in developing industry to now Russia being one of the three biggest superpowers in the world that comes from how actually successful the country was in modernizing and creating wealth for itself and uh, building up their industry and their let's put, economy. Let's put it this way. You know, there's more than one way to modernize a country at great human cost. Yeah, yeah. Which, right. you know, <laughs> capitalism has been successful at this, whatever the USSR was successful at that, right? If that's your metric, like modernization right, right, right. at enormous human cost, that right. the great hope is that you can actually value humanity, value, you know, freedom from domination enough that create an Absolutely. economic system where that's a central value. And that's, and I mean, I think that's the other thing. We talk, a lot of people, when they make the argument about the Soviet Union or, or in general, these kind of arguments about, you know, again, socialism, you know, doesn't work in practice or, or any kind of planning doesn't work in practice. It's, there's also a kind of very narrow vision of how people do things or how you get people to do things. And it's a section of the book about that. And this question of incentives comes up. Well, yeah, we can't have socialism or we can't have a planned economy because we need incentives, right? As if the only incentive that people responded to or adequately responded to was the price signal. The Soviet Union showed that, you know, that there is a kind of planning. And that's and it's, again, in a smaller form, the same kind of planning that happens within corporations, which is kind of authoritarian planning based on domination. Sure, you get a, you know, there is the incentive of you get your wage, but for that you give up basically your freedom for those for right. those eight hours. So that's one way of making people do things. The price signal, you know, going out and searching out for the biggest bargain, and that's what tells corporations what to produce and all of that. That's another way of making people do things. But there's far more mm -hmm. ways. Humans are social by nature, and we have lots of ways of making sure that we're working together. And it's a very poor theory of 
what humans are capable of and of human nature to think that these are the two ways that people can be, you know, compelled. Any economy needs to sort of, in scare quotes, compel people. We need to like do things together and make plans. Sure, yeah. But yeah, but the, to make each other stick to those plans, there's lots of different way, ways to do that. And there's definitely ways that involve democracy and don't necessarily involve either domination of this kind of very explicit kind or the kind that where part and parcel of it is exploitation of the kind that you get in in capitalism yeah being compelled to work because you need to make money to because live or that's you all you have food. Yeah. yeah because that's all you have I, I would say or at least this is one of the sort of hypotheses that we put forward in the book is that this hierarchical planning the walmarts of the world is akin to the hierarchical planning the soviet union with the exception that in the soviet union of course the domination was on the basis of like, well, if you don't reach this target, you're dead. Um, if in Walmart, if you don't reach this target, you're fired. Right. Or you know, in variations on those two themes. But one is obviously quite much more severe than the other, mm-hmm. which suggests why the deterioration of the quality of the information in that system was so much worse than the other. But here's a crucial thing is the corollary to this is that we are actually hypothesizing, we're suggesting that the quality of the information within Walmart is actually inferior to what it would be if that form of domination, even a lesser form of domination and and hierarchy, would be eliminated as well. We're suggesting that true democratic cooperative planning, in principle, the the, the fidelity of the information within that system should be better. Yeah, yeah, one of the words I wrote down when I was reading you talking about that aspect was trust and how the Mm -hmm. different elements of an organization need to trust each other. And like being threatened, obviously, with the gulag can make you an untrustworthy reporter of (laughs) what's Mm -hmm. going on Mm -hmm. for you. Um, Because you need to report having a lot of grain, no matter how much grain you have. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's very important that the report says that. (laughs) The idea of trust being this fundamental necessity in creating cooperative enterprises was uh, really hit home for me as important for this. Yeah, I think what was really quite remarkable about reading some of the research from these business scholars who are, you know, these are great defenders of capitalism, the free market, and so on and so forth. What is striking, not just in one or two, but across the board, how many of them described that one of the crucial elements that made the Walmart success was that the scale of trust of sharing of information between Walmart and its suppliers and vice versa, to trust them with information from a millisecond to millisecond basis of what's being sold with uh, their suppliers and going even back for, you know, even deeper in the supply chain this incredible trust between the the, the different uh, units, which does speak to, again, our conversations about the, the possibility of cooperation being other forms of incentivization within production. Hey, Sean, why do you do things? Is it because you're forced by money? Yes. Is that the only reason? Yes. <laughs> so fear of death never comes into it, or like punishment or death no. or anything, just because you want money? Yes. <laughs> if I'm ever afraid for my life, the part of that that scares me is that if I die, I will stop making money. Oh, okay. Well, if that's how you feel, then the next question I was going to ask is kind of, it's a given, so I don't even have to ask What's it. the question? I might have a surprising answer. <laughs> well, I really, I don't know how this could be any other answer, but no, based on what you've said so far. But the question was, when you were a kid, did you ever see somebody doing something they loved and you felt that you wanted to do that thing and that feeling in you that you wanted to do that thing acted as an incentive in and of itself 
to do that thing regardless of money or fear of punishment. Yes, absolutely. I had that experience. Oh, really? That is a surprising answer based on what you said before. I told you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I just I thought most people have had that experience, but I did. Yeah, it was strangely enough, it was a fiddler. Really? You wanted to be a fiddler? Mhm. Do you still want to be a fiddler? Uh deep down. Mm, yes. It's too bad we don't live in a society where <laughs> you could just drop everything and pursue that. <sighs> Mr. Rogers taught me that, that children catch an attitude of excitement to want to do things from seeing people do things that they love. I'd like to be like that, or I'd like to do that. I remember Yo-Yo Ma being on our program, and there have been families who have written to us to say, that their kids want to learn the cello. Right, because they saw Yo-Yo Ma on, on the program? Because they saw him love his work on the program. Uh. Oh, I remember it in the nursery school where I worked as I was doing my master's work in child development. There was a man who would come every week to sculpt in front of the kids. The director said, I don't want you to teach sculpting. I just want you to do what you do and love it in front of the children. During that year, clay was never used more imaginatively before or after than during that time that he came. I mean, if, if you love to bicycle, if you love to repair things, do that in front of the children. Let them catch the attitude that that's fun. Because you know attitudes are caught, they're not yeah. taught. Yeah, that's just what comes to mind for me when I think about things that motivate people. I think also people naturally like to sort of fill necessity, right? Like if people notice something isn't being done that needs to be done, there is sort of a natural urge to yeah, do yeah. it. Because then other, like you're helpful and other people are grateful to you and the thing is done and that's good too. It's just really good all around. You've been useful and you're esteemed. You're, mm, you're esteemed yes, esteemed it. in the eyes of your peers. Yeah, the good old esteemed and useful one, two. Bow, bow. Esteemed, bow. Useful, bow. That's an incentive. Definitely. And now it's time for the old We Just Lied to Stalin about how much grain we have. Uh-oh. Sketch. Oh man, I don't know what I was uh -oh. thinking. I, uh -oh. I panicked. I had less than the quota. I said that I had a little more than the quota. I don't know what I was. I don't. Yeah. I don't have the grain to back up. When the, you get on the phone with them, you're just like, "Yes, Mr. Stalin." I told them I had twice the, as much grain as the quota. Uh, uh, uh. We now go to the. We just hit a bunch of grain, and we're totally gonna get away with it. Sketch. Yeah, I got a few barrelfuls back at home, oh, definitely. Uh, <laughs> From barrel for a rainy day, barrel of grain. Yeah, take a little grain off the top. They won't notice. I mean, I'm a hard-working grainsman. I grow the grain. I hide the grain. I like to have an extra loaf of bread around. Let's just say I deserve as much as I took, and not a grain more. The grain grower is supposed to say, oh, for the collective, everyone gets my grain. No. Oh, yeah, I care so much about all this heavy industry and export numbers. No, I care about how much grain I got for me and mine. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's why, why we, we hoard. hoard. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go eat some grain. This will turn out fine. Yeah. This is one of those good plans. Yes. That works out. Yeah, definitely. 
And now we go to the perfect post-revolutionary, post-scarcity, communist utopia future where grain is no longer an issue for anyone sketch. When was the last time that you interacted directly with grain? You mean products made from grain? No, like grain itself. Oh, I definitely uh, don't grow it. I'm, I work in the information economy. I've seen pictures of grain. I don't know if I've ever interacted physically with it. Oh, no, no. In, in fifth grade, we went on a field trip to the robotic, self-growing, decommodified urban food tower where they grow all the grain for our municipal right. city-state. Yeah, yeah, I remember that, right. It was crazy seeing yeah, that Yeah, it was great education we've had in this society, too. They even let us take some home. Remember? Oh, yeah, no, I, I think I must still have that grain. Yeah, I mean, I definitely never made a final product with it. Or maybe it just I left it out in the yard to decompose hmm. back to Mother Earth. But Well, we have such an abundance of grain. Yeah, it's not it like a waste of food or rationed, anything. Yeah. Yeah, no. You don't need to hoard that. Definitely not. And if I wanted barrelfuls of grain delivered to me through a tube right now, someone would sort that out. Oh, the tube system is incredible. It's a perfect society. Grain's not political to me. Yeah. At all. It's pretty nice. It's a pretty nice time you and I live in. I can't think of a better time. It may be the future, but who knows? Could all go downhill. I don't think it will, but could. I think it's important to meditate on when things are going well. Yeah. That it can all be taken away. Definitely. Like, I don't think this is the best society's ever going to get. It's the best that it has ever gotten in the past, but I think it'll keep getting better. But if it doesn't, if this moment right now is the peak, and from now on it gets worse, devolves back into grain shortages, at least I saw the peak and I'll know what to aim for on the way back up. That's a beautiful philosophy. I can tell that you were raised around an abundance of material security and Mm -hmm. unconditional love from peers and and parents alike. Yeah, and my parents taught me to plan from a young age. Kind of the mantra of our society is plan, plan, plan. Always have a plan. Were you intentionally trying to start singing our national anthem there? I was just trying to talk about planning and it just slipped out, you know? One nation under plan. (laughs) (laughs) So on planet Earth, we're faced with an existential crisis, catastrophic climate change, Mm -hmm. burning alive in our homes and being tortured by scarcity, having to (laughs) live in... (laughs) We're not going to be burned alive in our homes. (laughs) We're going to have to live in climate-controlled pods by 2080 unless we change our course. How can... How does this relate... How do we plan our way out of it? Yeah, how does this relate to the, the biggest crisis of our times? So the fundamental cause of environmental issues or disruption of ecosystem services upon which we humans depend. So so long as a product is profitable, sufficiently profitable, no matter how harmful it is, it's still going to be produced no matter what in the absence of some non-market intervention to prevent it from being produced. In the case of climate change, we would be talking about fossil fuels there. That regardless of how everybody knows how harmful fossil fuels are, existentially, as you put it, we're still producing them because they're they're, they're just too profitable. Historically, with respect to the ozone layer, depletion of the ozone layer, we would say that chlorofluorocarbon, CFCs, were incredibly harmful. 
in fact, way more harmful than uh, greenhouse gases in terms of uh, the speed of change, that it would have been by mid-century that the ozone layer, which is not merely beneficial to humans, but sort of protects all terrestrial life, would have been depleted to such an extent that, you know, it really threatened, as I say, all terrestrial life. And the way that we prevented that from happening was not leaving the market to its own devices, because if we'd left the market to its own devices, CFCs would in fridges and hairspray would still be produced. Mm-hmm. It required planning, mm-hmm. regulation, and non-market intervention to prevent that technology from, from continuing to be used. The corollary to that, of course, is no matter how beneficial something is, if it isn't profitable or even sufficiently profitable, markets will not produce those those items. So again, in terms of climate change, we might be talking about something like rural fast charging stations for electric vehicles. Um, in North America, medium speed trains. You know. <laughs> <laughs> fast trains. Not, love- yeah, not, not, I mean, that'd be high, you know, aspirational. I mean, they, they will build out high speed trains between those lakes that they project will be profitable, yeah, uh, right. but will not be built between those regions that are uh, in Sula and Little Rock or whatever. Yeah, right? and we see this already, even outside of <laughs> environmental issues, but with respect to. High-speed internet access. If you live in the major metropoles, you can access high-speed internet fairly straightforwardly. But if you live in rural areas, it's almost impossible because telecommunications companies were privatized in the 80s or 90s. So, for example, Nunavut, the territory of Nunavut has a population of 30,000 people. The entirety of the territory has the bandwidth there that the average Canadian household in southern Canada has. And the only way that that would change would be through public provision of that that service. So coming back to the, the argument about why markets are the cause of all environmental disruption, if something is dangerous or harmful but profitable, it will continue to be produced. If something is beneficial but not profitable, it won't be produced. So all of the different environmental challenges that we face come down to a problem with, of markets. And then there's a sort of secondary aspect to this in terms of climate change. Some of the challenges that we face are cross-border. So, for example, integration of variable renewable energy projects. One of the best ways to be able to have better integration of them is to be able to have a smart load balancing grid that shifts electricity that's being produced from, say, an area where the wind is blowing to an area where the wind isn't blowing. That's right across, say, on a continental scale that will be able to much more easily integrate wind farms. But the scale of of upfront capital investment for that sort of project is too vast, which makes the the risk too great for a market actor to engage in that. So it would require a public sector to build out that sort of thing. Same with nuclear power. and Planning on a global scale. Yeah. Yeah, So even if it's something that would be profitable enough, it's like if there's that initial hump of R&D and like who like who's gonna do that like no company wants to be the one who had to put up all this money to develop this technology that then the other people can all yeah and it's that old argument you know it's the same argument that the left now now is actually in the last few years really making in a much louder really more forceful way to its great success I think you know if you say like look at the iPhone you know all those like the Marianne Mazzucato who we cite in the book author of the entrepreneurial state the idea is the public sector had to fund all the basic research behind GPS, behind semiconductor, you know, behind every major module. Right. Yeah, um, there's a list of all the pieces within that, within yeah. within the cell phone. Yeah, exactly. From unfortunately, largely for military purposes, which again goes back to the kind of you know nationalization is not not enough. The Department of, of Defense, American Department of Defense, is a huge 
public sector planned, planned, planned entity, Hardly one of the largest them. in the world, one of the largest employers in the world. Right. And it is destructive of so many things. You know, so, so that links into the pharmaceutical argument, but it also shows the extent to which it is the public sector upfronting this research that doesn't care, that is like pursuing goals that are different than profit, mm -hmm. right? The Department of Defense wants to, at the time, whatever it was, an annihilate the Soviet Union, or at least, you know, make a bulwark against it and spread the good word to the <laughs> to the rest of the world, right? right, right, right. Um, and it needed all these things to do. And it was a completely non-profit motive that drove this. And the same is true of, say, like pharmaceuticals and things like that. And again, where we face similar challenges, where there are huge challenges with like bacterial resistance, all this kind of stuff. And it's not the drug company that's making the 10th version of Viagra or whatever other, even better Viagra than last year's, than last Can't year's. Can't get much better than this. Viagra 3000. <laughs> Just wait. Um, that's, I mean, that, this is what's being, right? These lifestyle drugs. And then it produced rather than the basic, you know, like when, where's the next, new, new class the next of class of antibiotics, right? Yeah, yeah. And right. it will be the public sector in that, if it does happen, that will fund it. That's such a key point when it comes to like innovation and like meaningful innovation. When you're talking about, like you said, pharmaceuticals, cell phones, the internet and stuff, it's always given to Steve Jobs. Thank yeah. you much, so much yeah, Steve yeah. Jobs for these beautiful phones. But every component of that that makes it meaningful and makes it work and makes it such a key part of our lives is because high-risk investment was taken over by state actors. Yes. Steve Jobs just made it profitable. Yeah. Yeah. And the private sector can be like, oh, now the screen's bigger. It's got a better camera. But it's all these little tweaks it's more about... curved on the edges. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, pretty, no, no. Yeah. I mean, the market's pretty good at, at incremental improvements to gadgets. It's just yes. really shitty at blue sky research at taking something from the lab bench through to demonstration through to commercialization consistently it's been the public sector that has done this and as Mihal said the Italian American economist Mariana Mazzucato's entrepreneurial state goes into this in great detail we would definitely recommend people have a read of that so after the People's Republic uh, yeah, of, of course, Walmart, of course. ideally in at least two copies. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it makes uh, a great gift. Yeah. You know, the <laughs> so antibiotic resistance is another incredible yeah. uh, challenge. And I, I have to say, I sometimes get quite frustrated as a science writer and a progressive that the scale of the threat from antimicrobial resistance isn't as forefront in the, the, sure, the imaginary of the left as climate change is when it is, if anything, an even more immediate existential threat to us. All of modern medicine, from surgery through to just, you know, catheters or whatever happens to be, needles, everything depends upon a background of antimicrobial protection. When that's gone, and it could be anywhere from the next five to 25 years, where, you know, the last line of defense in terms of antibiotics are no longer usable, that's gone. You know, in terms of our way of life, that is so much more transformative in the near term than climate change. Not to pit one against the other, but that, the, and the reason this, uh, you can go from the head of the Centers for Disease Control in the United States so to the European Union's former chief scientific advisor, every single one of them will point to the reason for the, the problem is that it costs about a billion dollars US to produce any, what's called a new molecular entity. So effectively, you know, so a new drug. If you're going to spend a billion dollars on that, are you going to spend that money on a drug that, like antibiotics, somebody takes for two or three weeks and then that's it? And yeah. if it works, yeah, you don't need right. to take it again. Or in the case of uh, the, mm -hmm. you know, the extreme outlier, this would be something like tuberculosis, where you, know, you take the, those, those, those drugs for you know, six, seven, eight months. But even then, if you're successful, you don't have to take those drugs again. Or if you want to make money, 
Do you want somebody to be having to take it from a chronic disease where they have to take that drug every day for the rest of their life? That's much more profitable. And so about 25, 30 years ago, all the major pharmaceutical companies got out of the business of doing antibiotic research. It's now almost entirely in the public sector, universities or government labs. There are some small startups that do this, but their aim also is basically they don't have the money to do the billions that it, it takes to go through to think, multiple clinical trials. I think what we're trying to say is basically it's plan or die in multiple ways. Yeah. The dying. Yeah. Well, yeah, with the, the antibiotic resistance, it's the phrase I've heard is like a new medical dark age where we're no yes, longer able yeah, to do yeah, basic yeah. surgery and stuff yes, like that. Yeah. So if we were going to make a quick list of all the things that are going to kill all humans, <laughs> if we don't plan, <laughs> we could rank them all like in, yeah. a, in a quick list of all these. <laughs> all, all would be pretty bad. I think right? it's, yeah. impor- it's important not all... to be apocalyptic about no, these no, I mean, that's why I, doom-mongering. I, uh-huh. I joke. But, and you know, the flip side of that is we have like the ozone thing, which is one example, but we, when faced mm. with these kinds of challenges, we have, but we've planned, we've planned our way out of them. In the same way, ideally, we, we will plan our way out of, say, antimicro resistance, but it will be the public sector that does it. We'll be all of us together collectively, and if the political economy continues as it does, the billionaires will again be off the hook and we'll all be kind of, you know, chipping in a bit and saying, okay, you know, less child care just so we can live or whatever, right? You know, whatever the, the austerity framework has been for the last... Right. For the last thirty years, and <laughs> the point of the book is to say that you know we're we need planning, especially facing these. I mean, that's what we get to kind of at the end is that facing these kinds of existential challenges. You know, humans are ingenious, creative, fabulous things. Unfortunately, very prone to making crappy social relations, often not of their own accord. That we can overcome this, but it will have to take democratic planning, like willful, planful, non-market intervention, ideally of ever larger spheres of life and on a scale that matches the scale of some of these crises, which is global and in the case of the antimicrobial thing, a little narrower in terms of climate change, extremely far reaching, right? From transport to heating, like touches every aspect of our lives. I mean, we can be talking about nitrogen pollution management it needs to be governed at a global level, needs to be planned. We could be talking about even the number of satellites and space junk at the moment. It is simply in- unprofitable to be cleaning that up. And within a few decades, it may be impossible for us to get out of, of the Earth as a result of the... the satellites the, 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 that do not bring us joy. <laughs> <laughs> no, they do not spark joy. No, no, spark joy. Um, so there's a range of global challenges that we face, and every single one of them, the thread that links off them in terms of their resolution, is planning. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by one of the 10,000 futures where we've solved the climate crisis perfectly. In fact, better than perfectly. We've made the climate absolutely perfect. Every day is beautiful. But we left new classes of antibiotics up to the profit motive and they never got made. So this is that future. Wow, what another beautiful, perfect day. What is this, the 10,000th perfect day in every way in a row? In every way, climate-wise, you mean, right? Oh, did you think I meant about antibiotics? Maybe you just meant perfect in totality. And I was going to say, oh, no, no. It's perfect climate. I do love this warm, on the warm end of mild weather that we enjoy every day. Sunshine, no clouds. 
But yeah, speaking of antimicrobial stuff, the wife, did the old classes of antibiotics work? No, they didn't. Oh. Super tuberculosis. Mm, sorry to hear that. She's dead. Yeah. Well, um, that's a yeah. common occurrence in our world now, so... It's gonna say that makes it easier, but it does make it expected. Yeah, it's the third family member in the, in the year. Mm. Uh, my youngest son, he had a. Sorry for boring you with this. But I have heard it before, but and I understand you probably. And everyone's talk. got a story like this. It's like, why should I take up space with my personal tragedy? But my youngest son, he uh, super meningitis. Though I know, yeah, it's a terrible tragedy. Yeah, and I my, almost I almost feel bad that all. Sorry, my, and my middle daughter, she got a bad infection and super staff. If I'm not misremembering, I try to remember which diseases kill all my friends' children. So you can interrupt them when they're mourning. Yeah, here. and another thing I was gonna say, I almost feel bad that none of my kids have died yeah you mention that all the time actually people whose kids are already dead they don't really get it you know it's like maybe you had fear in the past but it's like who remembers what it was like to be a kid when you're not a kid anymore who remembers what it's like to have kids in fear for their life when they're already dead so if you're accusing me of not empathizing with you i'm just saying maybe take the stick out of your own eye. oh yeah no no i'm not like the other parents with dead kids i get it people like you get so mistreated over this stuff thank you thank you and now i have more sympathy for you and your dead kids because you're not so whiny honestly i think it's worse to have all your kids still alive because i mean for right? me at least with my kids it's settled yeah, I know, you know where you we stand. yeah i'm not constantly wondering oh will my middle daughter jamie die because i know no she won't because she already did years ago. That's the world we live in. The future where we've solved the climate crisis, but not the antibiotic resistance problem. It's not a great one. Not a great future. Proud sponsor of today's episode. So you said before, Lee, that we shouldn't be doom-mongering, yeah. but it occurs to me that for all the planning that we're talking about that needs to happen, it seems like almost none of it is happening. Like we have a little, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. we have a little bit of carbon tax in some places, but yeah. and they're completely ineffective. Yeah, or largely ineffective. It's yeah, no, I wouldn't not say complete, that, not complete. Well, what I would say is the data, data suggests that the carbon tax in British Columbia and the carbon tax in California. It's very difficult to recognize any sort of that that's had any sort of signal, whereas the decision by the British Columbian government a number of years ago to simply not build three coal-fired power plants, three or maybe it was two, okay. uh, the mitigation in terms of reduction of greenhouse gas emissions was huge compared to this. You know, the carbon tax was introduced in 2000, when it was 2009, 2007, 2007 you know, just ahead of the, the economic crisis. So was it the economic crisis that caused the very, very modest reduction in, in emissions? Or was it the carbon tax? Can't really say. In California, they have a carbon tax there as well. But it's actually been the more command and control regulations that have had really significant emissions reductions. And this is not just me saying this. This is energy systems experts, policy experts in, in California. They're recognizing this is the case. But of course, this our argument here about planning poses a challenge to both the sort of neoliberal responses to these challenges. If the problem is caused by the market in terms of 
if something's profitable, it will continue to be produced in the absence of non-market intervention. Or if something is beneficial, but because of its insufficient profitability will not be produced, carbon taxation and uh, emissions trading will not solve that problem because it's fundamentally dependent on the market. And the same with uh, antimicrobial resistance. All of these same people who recognize the market as the problem, their solution is, well, we have to tweak the market somehow. So things like giving effectively legal bribes to the major pharmaceutical companies to do the research into new classes of antibiotic and the way that that would potentially happen would be, well, we'll bump whatever other drug that you like to the front of the queue for regulation and you get to choose which one it is if you do this thing over here with uh, right. I mean I think that's that's horrific because we do actually want a good regulatory process for all drugs <laughs> yeah. we don't want to give uh, and all of these 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 figures who are trying to come up with these these market clutches to solve the problem and you suggest them well, why don't you just bloody nationalize the pharmaceutical companies so that the profitable drugs subsidize the unprofitable drugs the way that we used to do with, say, the telecommunications companies when they were public, or the postal service, where it does not cost $1,000 to send a package from Vancouver to Whitehorse. The, the vast majority of, of postal exchanges that happen in Vancouver would subsidize those occasional things that go to Whitehorse and similar sort of thing. Why can't you do that? And the response is always from these people, but that's impossible. Nobody nationalizes anything anymore. Nobody does well, planning. It's, it's, yeah. it, it, that and, and this extremely impoverished view of human nature. Mm-hmm. Well, we need prices, right? We need these incentives, otherwise things will go haywire. Whereas, again, right across the economy, there's so much that happens without, without these incentives. And again, and it's just a poor theory of how humans work. Like we can't trust people to make decisions in a transparent, in a transparent way, in a deliberative way, in some way that actually gives them some autonomy. We're going to do them through this social system that's based off of this very, very narrow ends that end up just being like, oh, some people get to have lots of money claims on resources it's like no no we need to run the world just like sears was being run yeah. right before yeah. sears went bankrupt yeah. and doesn't exist anymore yeah <laughs> that's the most important thing but there's so from lefties it's unsurprising that we would have criticisms of, of market solutions to, to climate change or antimicrobial resistance or whatever existential challenge you want to be talking about but we should be clear that this also represents a challenge to some sections of the green left that view the fundamental cause of environmental problems as one of growth that if they're focusing on growth rather than market mechanisms then they're letting the real villain off the hook the sort of retreat from scale the decentralization the smallest beautiful approach that if they're not fundamentally focused on the market as the cause of the problem, then we aren't going to be able to solve this enormous challenge. But it's like, it's hard not to be a doomsayer sometimes when, like, we know that we could do these things. We mm. could we could <laughs> plan to stop using carbon the quickest way possible, get yeah. people who understand these things on it, put the R&D into the right sectors of the economy to develop alternative ways of doing these things that are yeah. currently releasing too much carbon or to invest in new antibiotics that uh, will keep working. But, like, those things aren't happening yeah, <laughs> and, no, like, yeah, and, and so it's, it's scary like, <laughs> yeah. like the doom saying sometimes you just want to be like it is going to be really bad if we yeah. don't <laughs> if well, we no, don't you need, you, you, you need to have a realistic appraisal of the yeah. situation i think and i think that that is 
really important and, and there's no reason to be Pollyannish. I mean, that's one of the last chapters of the book is is on the good versus the bad Anthropocene and, and this challenge of global sort of climate planning. And the book kind of leads up to that. And part of the point is to say like, yeah, we do know how to do this, which I mean, in mm-hmm. some, I think we know, but not just on the left, but everywhere we've had neoliberalism. It's just been our ideological <clears throat> blinders are so thoroughgoing mm. that we kind of know, but we kind of don't. We kind of don't trust ourselves, right? That, that idea of trust or that idea, like we, we don't think that we're capable of doing this in a kind of, again, in this kind of... This is a Mark Fisher's capitalist realism. Yeah, you know, exactly. That we have this, you know, room that, that tells us that we can't and that thoroughgoing change isn't possible. So it's, you know, this book isn't going to do that much, but it's just part of getting these kinds of ideas out there. For sure. And in a way yeah. that with the examples of whatever, the Walmarts and the Amazons, it is that aspect of kind of the other coin of that realism where, yeah, okay, it's already happening. We are capable of doing this, but in, you know, in, in all the wrong kind of ways. In terms of the doomong, I mean, I would, I would just add that I think the two great dangers are, are being either a Pollyanna or, or a Cassandra, that everything's tickety-boo, uh, we live in the best of all possible worlds. Um, Elon Musk will save us from climate change. Ex- yeah, Elon <laughs> Musk will save us from climate change. Or a sort of like, the end is nigh, humans are awful, stand out in the corner with a sandwich board saying, the, you know, the, the end is here. No, what we need is realistic evidence-based urgency to deal with these problems, neither doom-mongering nor uh, sort of cheerleading for the current state. But one of the, I mean, the main reasons I've been writing about this sort of stuff, both within this book and my previous book and just other essays, is that, I mean, yeah, uh, what was it, last year, the BP Statistical Energy Review, which is sort of like the gold standard of emissions and energy transformation in the world that everybody who's a climate watcher waits with a bated breath when every year it comes out. And last year, it was really quite a a sobering report because it said that in 2018, in the global energy mix, the share of non-fossil fuel energy was no different from the global share of non-fossil energy production in 1998, the year the Kyoto Protocol was signed. So 20 years, two decades of UN summits and record built out of solar and wind, and we're standing still. In fact, it's worse than standing still because actually the share of nuclear energy declined slightly. So we're actually worse in terms of clean energy production as a share of uh, the overall mix. So yeah, no, I like I am definitely concerned. Right, right, yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah. it's precisely because on the one hand, the two options before us have been market mechanisms, which clearly haven't worked, emissions trading, carbon taxation, or smallest beautiful retreat back to the land sort of stuff from the green left. And meantime, the solution that will work, economic planning, regulation, public sector, building out of infrastructure, shepherding of lab bench technology through to development and commercialization, those things that have proven to work in the past are not being talked about. So it's about reviving that conversation about planning as the crucial element to solving our, our, our climate crisis and the wider biocrisis. And so if you're at home and you want to help revive that conversation, there's this new book out called The People's Republic of Walmart. It's available on Amazon. It's from Verso Books. You can pick it up right from Amazon. One day it'll be available at Walmart, <laughs> yes. hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's honestly just an awesome book that covers like a ton of territory, really, really essential stuff. And 
builds it into a coherent narrative, sincerely makes a really good gift. It's something you can give to pretty much anyone and convince them of a whole whack of really important things <laughs> that most people don't think. So yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, thanks thanks Absolutely. for coming on thanks. the show. Uh, thanks. <laughs> I have nothing to add, um, really, after that. No, thank, thanks for thanks for having me. It's lots of fun. Yeah, it was great. I mean, we didn't even get to talk about all the great stuff that's in their book, like the socialist internet in Chile when Allende was in power for a couple of years. Grab it for yourself. Grab it as a gift. Yeah, it comes out March 5th, I think. It's honestly available for pre-order. So yeah, it's available for pre-order. Don't even, don't even let that hold you back. It was so good. And they kept saying great stuff after we turned off the mics. Like Lee was telling us about how planning allowed us to solve acid rain and like 7% increase increased in forest cover over a certain amount of time. I can't remember what it was, but... He also mentioned that you could have planes that are carbon negative because there's a way of producing fuel from yeah, fuel carbon where, capture. I think it was a fuel where the reaction of the fuel used carbon or something. I don't know. Maybe I'm... That might be wrong. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. I don't know specifically what that is. How that worked, but... Um, it's a great interview. Great time. Yeah. So... Thanks for listening. And as usual, if you want to send us some feedback, you can do so on our website. You could follow us on social media and you could donate to us monthly. It makes a big difference. Patreon. Patreon.com. the platform slash that happens. Seriously wrong. Next time on Seriously Wrong, we talk about the difference between growth as an amorphous concept that could mean anything including the growth of all waste and a positive type of growth in the living standards of all human beings, which we should pursue forever.